I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one that we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I was still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. So uh, we're on to our second alone. Um, Samson pointed something out to me yesterday, which I hadn't realized, that actually my middle name is Alexander. And in my email, it comes across as Ed Alone. So quite the appropriate person to be giving these talks, he said. I, now, this is my first time to Adelaide, so I'm not sure um, how... I'm, I'm pretty sure that this w- would happen, but um, it certainly happens back home where uh, you read stories in the local newspaper and uh, in councils, particularly in areas where there's um, beautiful views, uh, sometimes, mysteriously, like overnight or over the course of you know a few weeks or a month, um, large trees die or get chopped down or something like that, mysteriously. I don't know, does that happen in Adelaide if somebody has a big view over? Okay, okay. all right. It's a, it's a known experience. Uh, and so, you know, I love trees. They're beautiful shade and uh, habitat for the wildlife. They're, they're lovely to look at. What could be so bad? But, of course, when you read these stories in the paper or if you experience them uh, firsthand in the street, um, it becomes pretty obvious uh, as the um, story unfolds that um, there was a reason that these trees mysteriously died and that's because behind the trees there was a house that suddenly now has this magnificent view, you know, um, of Sydney Harbour at home or w- w- whatever it is, um, Port Adelaide <laughs> uh, here. <laughs> same thing, same thing, right? Um, and, uh, and suddenly, you know, the trees that were once blocking the view are now gone and of course, that's illegal, and they're not supposed to have done that. But um, you kind of you can see why, in one respect, because now this magnificent vista is opened up uh, to them. And uh, I, I, I want to say I have a little bit of um, sympathy. Uh, like I like the trees, and they shouldn't be chopped down. But especially for people, because sometimes people buy a house because it's got a lovely view and then their neighbor because they want don't want their you know them looking in their backyard or something plant large trees and and over the course of the years their lovely view just gets crowded out and crowded out and then finally they snap and they go and poison the trees or something like that and i have a little bit of sympathy for that because they bought the very thing that they bought the house for is taken away by those trees okay well um, the reality is that uh, way back 500 years ago, something similar to that had happened in the church in uh, Europe. Uh, numerous trees had grown up in such a way that the gospel had been completely obscured and corrupted. And we saw that a little bit in our first talk when we were talking about um, scripture alone 
how the, the church had replaced the Bible's authority with the Pope's authority and the church's authority. Um, and this is very important when these things obscure and block uh, the view uh, because at the heart of Christianity are questions of how will God accept a sinful person like me? On what grounds can humans relate to him? And our hope is that in this talk uh, we'll be uh, talking about what's being described as the centre of the solas, the alones, uh, and Christian theology, the doctrine of Christ alone. Uh, and I hope that we'll see that being a Christian is like being given a house with a magnificent view, and if anybody plants trees in front of that view... Really, what you ought to do is go and chop those trees down. All right, don't do it in if it's your house and it's a view because that might be illegal. But in the metaphor, <laughs> um, is that nothing should stand in the way of the glory of the Christian gospel of what God has done through Christ alone, through Jesus Christ, who died and rose again, and uh, it's in Him alone that we have our salvation. It's in Him alone we look to for justification. Him alone. We're supposed to worship and honour. And as we see Jesus in the Bible, we what we see is something magnificent to behold, glorious, so comprehensive, so perfect, so loving, so beautiful, that he should uh, consume the views in our lives. Uh, but the reality is that sometimes, as I say, other things, less beautiful things, less important things are allowed to grow up in front of that view. Uh, things grow up in front of Christ and they block our vision uh, so that we don't see as clearly as we should should see. And so what I want to do uh, in this talk is talk a little bit about the trees that grew up or had grown up uh, in the years before the Reformation uh, that obstructed people's views. And then I want to talk about the Reformers' rediscovery of Christ alone in other words, uh, what they did to chop down those trees. And then I want to bring it back a bit to us to look at what potentially are, tr- are trees in our lives and how we might uh, chop those down. But if we go back, I want to go back, take us back to church life 500 years ago. Um, what was it like? And there are, there are a number of things which might seem a bit foreign to us, but they were part and parcel of what uh, someone who was going to church 500 years ago, their existence would have looked like. Uh, and the first, I've got the list on the outline that I want to just briefly highlight to us. First was the place of saints in the Christian life. Uh, and we see that the role of saints for people 500 years ago was pervasive. Uh, and the, the story of the way that they grew up um, is kind of understandable. So in the early church, there were Christians, as we just saw in our first talk, who made bold stands uh, for their Christian faith and were put to death, uh, martyrs and so on, uh, for Christianity. And the, the, the churches that knew these people, uh, they did things like they commemorated the day that they died. They wanted to honour them. And that was, you know, fair enough. You know, that was a good thing. They were an encouragement to them. But as the years went by, um, the place of these people, these saints, grew and grew and grew. And the reverence developed from being an example of faithfulness for Christians to live by, uh, became really a, a cult of supernatural power, supernatural beings that could do miraculous things 
And uh, most importantly, for the average Christian, they could uh, intercede for you with God, these saints, because they were so special. And um, the most important of these saints was was Mary, uh, the, the mother of Jesus. Uh, and she was subject of widespread adoration and worship, really, right the way across Europe. Um, and so people were encouraged to pray to Mary and the other saints in order that because they were really holy, uh, they might mediate for them to God. And so an example of this is our friend Martin Luther, who um, before he nailed his 95 Theses to the wall, 10 years before that, well, no, um, in, in 1505, so what's that, 13 years, 12 years, my maths degree is a long way in the past, <laughs> 12 years before that, um, he was he was studying law at university and he came into a thunderstorm, a lightning storm, and he was thrown off his horse and he realised he was confronted with the power of God and he decided to make a vow and he prayed, not to God, but to St Anne, okay? Please, St Anne, if, you, if, if God will save me through this storm, I'll become a monk. That's how he became a monk. So a good example of the medieval life, how are you going to relate to God? Well, these saints are going to be the avenue because they're specially holy. And if they can put in a good word for you, then you might just get there. You see that there's a barrier between people and God and they, they're looking for some mediation. And so um, along with this was that people would go on pilgrimages to special sites that were associated with these saints. And if you went along to these uh, special uh, places, then you could access um, some of their merit, which is my next point, the treasury of merit. So what the saints had done effectively was that they had lived such good lives that they had an abundance of merit. <laughs> and uh, this, was, this became a big controversy in the 16th century. It probably sounds uh, funny to us, but we can relate to it because it was a bit like the, the church had said that the way that we relate to God is a bit like the way that you relate to your bank, okay? And um, God, for you to be okay with God, you need to keep your account in the black. But because of sin, you go into the red. But there are some people who are so good that their account's way in the black. And uh, the nice thing is that this um, excess of funds, of goodness that they have, uh, can be shared and given out by the church. This is the treasury of merit. And it's the, these were called works of super irrigation, works above and beyond what needed to get you in the black. And this is what saints had done. And uh, this treasury of merit, the church was in charge of, and it could dispense so that all the sinful people whose accounts were in the red, if you did things that the church told you to do, they could transfer from one account to another, okay, by this treasury of, of merit. It's like... Um, uh, the church justified this by saying that Jesus had said to Peter that he had the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Well, it was, it was a little bit, the church said, well, really, we've got the um, ATM code of the saint's bank account and we can withdraw and transfer, all right? That's how it effectively worked. Um, the church was able to shuffle these funds, the merit, around from people who had lots to people who had little uh, and one of the ways that they did this was through indulgences, which is my next point, okay? All of these things probably sound foreign to us, but this is the way that church life was practiced 500 years ago. Uh, this um, 
granting indulgences had uh, begun in the 11th century when Pope Urban, you might have heard of the Crusades, said that anybody who goes on a crusade to take back Jerusalem from uh, the, the Muslims, uh, they will get an indulgence, which means that uh, they'll get kind of a free pass for the sins that they've committed. Okay, I'm going to grant them that from the treasury of merit. Okay, um, but then over the uh, course of um, the centuries in between, the church decided that actually these indulgences, that got people to do what they wanted. Okay, so um, that Pope Urban's first crusade, 40,000 people signed up, okay, went off. Um, and the church realized, actually, if, I, if we give out these pieces of paper transferring these this treasury of merit to other people, um, people will do all kinds of things. And so at the end of the 15th century, the Pope decided he wanted to build a big church in Rome called St. Peter's. Perhaps some people have been there. Um, where the Pope still kind of has his, um, you know, audiences and so on. And the way that they're going to, that's expensive thing to do, to build a church. What we can do is we can sell indulgences. So we'll raise money to build a church by selling these little bits of paper, which will give people the merit to get them okay with God. All right. The treasury of merit transfer. And so, um, uh, that's what was happening. But, this was, of course, subject to great abuse, um, and uh, the idea was that an indulgence would take time off uh, your experience in purgatory, um, which is our next point. And uh, at the time of the Reformation, there were scrupulous, um, unscrupulous salespeople who were selling these indulgences, famously Johann Tetzel, who said, as soon as the coin in the box rings, a soul from purgatory to heaven springs. Okay, and so basically what they were saying was, um, so after life, uh, there was this third destination, purgatory, where you could work to pay off and get your account back in the black, all right? But if you paid now, uh, that would mean that your account kind of got closer to the black, so you had less time in purgatory. But you also had the opportunity to um, pay for somebody else to get uh, a little bit of time off in purgatory. So do you really love grandma? Because at the moment she's in purgatory. If you just put in a little bit of money, that'll help her. And so it was very unscrupulous the way that they, they were doing this. Um, so which leads us to our, uh, the doctrine of purgatory, which had again developed in the Middle Ages, uh, this third place. So you had heaven, the goal, hell, where uh, people uh, wanted to avoid. Um, and then a third place, uh, because very few people were able to get their accounts into the black, only those really special saints. Everybody else um, hadn't done enough in this life to get into the black, so they were going to, after this life, try and work it off in, in purgatory, make satisfaction. Um, and as I say, um, the, the church had come up with a way that actually the living could help those who were already in purgatory uh, to try and um, take time off uh, purgatory. Um, the, the church hadn't come up formally with um, any kind of official um, kind of council declaration of what purgatory was like. So for the average person, the stories of how terrible it was and how much it needed to be avoided, especially amongst people who were trying to sell indulgences to get you out of there ran rife and it was presented as a very scary place. 
And so people would um, leave money so that they could do special things to get them out of purgatory after they died. So um, one of the one of the things was, as I said before, about all those priests in a cathedral doing the mass. Often that was someone would have left money to pay for a priest, you know, in perpetual in perpetuity, whatever the word is, to say mass to get them out of purgatory. Yeah, I've been a pretty bad boy, but if I leave this much money, Henry VIII did that. Okay, when he died, he left money so that priests would continue to say mass for his soul. His son came in who was a Protestant who said, we don't believe any of that stuff anymore, so we'll get rid of those things. <laughs> um, which leads us on to um, mass, which we we kind of uh, spoke about a little bit in the uh, first talk. This was the mainstay of church life experience, was um, what was happening in the mass. But the church's teaching, which I didn't uh, fully explain, was that actually what was taking place in the mass was... The church still taught that it was Jesus' sacrifice that was um, would, would make satisfaction, but they said that we do. Jesus is sacrificed each time the mass is said because it really is Jesus' body and blood that's offered up again. And so the, that's why the mass was so important because they they did think Jesus was important, but they thought that they were re-sacrificing Christ every time the priest did this. The priest was the mediator. Uh, re-sacrificing Christ on behalf of the people who were watching on. That's why it was so special. Um, and so uh, for, for regular people, actually, you know, it wasn't that Christ was completely absent from church life. It was that there was this reshaping of uh, how Christ was part of church life. He was there in the Mass um, rather than what had taken place uh, way back at Calvary. And so, of course, uh, how did we get to this situation? Well, it's what we were talking about in the first talk with traditions taking over um, from Scripture. And the main thing that happened and one of the great battles of the Reformation was uh, the role and authority of the Pope. So uh, the papacy had developed in the Western Church over a period of centuries and the Pope had assumed greater and greater authority and the titles that he took for himself demonstrate this. So um, the Pope was uh, called um, the Vicar of Christ, Christ's representative. He was, he was the person that was Christ to the world, if you like. Um, he was called the Pontifus Maximus, the Supreme Pontiff, still called this. Well, what does that word mean? Um, it means I make a bridge. He was the bridge maker between humans and God. He was the person in between. Um, And what that meant for people living in the 16th century was that to be out of fellowship with the Pope meant being out of fellowship with God. And in a kind of a derivative sense, to be out of fellowship with the bishop or the priest of your local parish meant you were cut off from God. And uh, so despite the fact that there was widespread corruption in the papacy, amongst the bishops, amongst the priests. Uh, they were supposed to live godly, separate lives, celibate lives. Most of them, well, a widespread number of them uh, had concubines and children and things like that. Um, despite that immorality, the teaching was you can't break. You can't break because to break meant you were breaking away from God himself. Okay. So at every level, the church was structured as a mediator between the people and God. So people here, God there, church in between. 
uh, and it, it offered salvation through its sacraments, the mass and baptism and so on, through the sale of indulgences. And so while the work of Christ wasn't explicitly denied by the church, they still said Jesus is important, the numerous errors of doctrine that had grown up uh, were such that Christ's work was obscured. People couldn't see it for what it was. Um, the application of Christ's work was perverted. It was corrupted. Uh, and it was remedying this great corruption, the cutting away of all these obstacles that was really at the very heart of the reformers' work. So this, is, this flowed from their rediscovery of Scripture was Christ alone, uh, reclaiming the doctrine of Christ alone. Uh, this was consistent across all the reformers' work was to put Christ back in the centre of Christianity. <laughs> um, it sounds pretty obvious, but you see, uh, Christ is the hub around which all the other doctrines uh, revolve. And in fact, when we're talking about these solas of the Reformation, really, Christ is the hub from which they all flow as well. So um, faith alone, what's that referring to? It's referring to faith in Christ alone. That's not referring to faith as a nebulous thing. Grace alone is referring to God's gift to us in Christ alone. Um, so all of everything really revolves around. Scripture alone points to, because it's a testimony to Christ. Uh, and the, the reformers emphasized that it was Christ's Christ's merit, not ours or the saints, uh, Christ's sacrifice, Christ's satisfaction, which was at the heart of salvation. Uh, and therefore, Christ alone was the mediator between God and humanity. So the place that medieval, the medieval church, the medieval society had given to the church and the papacy and the saints was actually a sacrilege that undermined Christianity. Um, the, the reformers would call it antichrist. It undermined what Christ had done. Uh, so the first thing that the reformers pointed out was that uh, it was not my own merit or the supposed merit of saints that they had in extra store that was going to make me right before God. It was only what the perfect Jesus Christ had done for me. It was his merit that I needed. Um, John Calvin, he wrote that human merit was an unscriptural and dangerous idea that had done damage to the world, this idea that it was what we achieve that gets us okay with God. Uh, he said, uh, surely it is the most prideful term. It can do nothing but obscure God's, God's favour and imbue men with perverse haughtiness. It puffs up. If it's up to me, if I get there, I feel proud. If I don't get there, I feel despair. Uh, and in refuting the Roman Catholic Church, uh, he stated that although they profess the name of Christ in this whole business, what they do is they strip him of his power and virtually trample him underfoot. Because if you're engrafted into Christ through faith, you obtain not the opportunity to gain merit, but all the merits of Christ, for they're communicated to you. So this shift in salvation depending, even if it was only in a small marriage. They still had a place for Christ. They said Christ's sacrifice that we see over and over, very important. Uh, but even by just shifting it just a little bit to be based on our merit uh, meant that it was um, undermined completely. 
And the fact that the, the reformers saw that the Bible taught, no, no, it's all of Christ was truly liberating for people. And the notion of the treasury of merit accrued by saints and administered by church was completely cut away by the refocusing on the absolute sufficiency of Christ's merit. It's only his merit that's needed. The perfect righteousness of Christ is given to us as we trust in him. Uh, Christ's merit alone. Now, the second point is Christ's sacrifice alone. Uh, what the reformers emphasized was the uniqueness and sufficiency of what Christ had done uh, for us in dying on the cross. So in contrast to the, the Roman mass, where there was this re-sacrifice of Christ over and over and over each time the ceremony was performed, uh, the author of Hebrews in the Bibles states plainly that the old covenant priesthood that repeatedly offers, offered sacrifices for sin um, had been undone because Christ had offered himself once and for all for sin. And you see, what was happening in the late medieval mass was really that Old Testament system being reenacted again, uh, albeit with Jesus being offered over and over rather than an animal in the Old Testament. Uh, the reformers found that to be at odds with the teaching of the New Testament. No, Christ's sacrifice was once and for all. It was completely sufficient. To say we need to redo it over and over again undermines his achievement. It says it wasn't good enough the first time. Um, and so rather than being a, a memorial of Christ's perfect atoning work, according to Calvin, actually what was happening in the Mass was that people would forget what Christ had done back there and look at what they thought was happening right here. It led to Christ forgetfulness, is what he said the Mass had done. Uh, the, the reformers, they said Christ's sacrifice alone was the only means that God had given for achieving forgiveness and reconciliation. Um, so Christ's sacrifice alone. Uh, the reformed uh, understanding of this sacrifice was uh, that um, it meant that there were numerous revisions of the uh, medieval systematic theology. Uh, most importantly, the idea that Christ's satisfaction meant that we could have reconciliation and that undermined their um, uh, system of penance and indulgences and all of those things that would, would get you out of purgatory. No, Christ had completely paid the price. Humanity didn't need to satis make satisfaction for their own sins uh, and as, as Luther kind of remembered back to his life before he was... Um, had understood the gospel when he'd gone into that monastery. Uh, he, he says that um, he, he, when he became a, a doctor, a teacher, he did not know that we cannot make satisfaction for our own sins. We can't do it. We can't do it. And yet it was the way that satisfaction was achieved that was a catalyst for the 95 Theses. The indulgences that Luther intended to dispute were not just those being sold by Tetzel, but also those that were gained by visiting relics of saints. And so uh, what happened was they the, uh, lived in Wittenberg and there was a very important prince who lived in Wittenberg, Prince Frederick, who came to be called Frederick the Wise because he supported Luther. I don't think that was his surname. 
Um, but Frederick, he was well and truly involved in these, um, this medieval um, system, and he was one of the greatest relic collectors in Europe. Very rich man, and he would buy relics. You know, you could get a vial of uh, the Virgin Mary's milk or the true, the true cross of Christ, you know, a splinter of the true cross of Christ. And all of these things were supposed to be a powerful thing to uh, help you in your Christian life. And he, once a year, would display these relics, okay, so that all the people from around could come and it would be a little bit of satisfaction in terms of um, building them up towards God, paying for their sins, satisfying the wrong that they'd done. And uh, he displayed them in All Saints Castle Church, which was his own private chapel there in Wittenberg. And he displayed them on All Saints Day. That's the name of the church. What day is that? The 1st of November. Okay? So the day before all these people were coming in to try and make satisfaction for their sins was the day Luther nailed his theses to the door, the 31st of October. So it would have most impact. Luther's challenge to this idea that you would satisfy for your own sins was, was quite uh, confronting at that, at that time. Uh, Luther, really, he was the first um, theologian of the Reformation to give proven, uh, prominence to the thought that the satisfaction to God for sin uh, was rendered on behalf of, uh, on our behalf by the cross, which was a penal substitutionary satisfaction. Uh, so he saw in scripture the satisfaction to God was um, the penal claims of the moral law. The wrong things that had been done, Christ was punished on our behalf. Uh, and that theme of penal substitutionary atonement, uh, that, the, that the Christ took our place, he, he substituted for us, shaped Reformed theology, continues to shape our theology. Um, Christ's propitiation on the cross uh, was, was what was needed for us. It didn't need to be continually offered over and over again uh, through the Mass. No, it happened on the cross. Look back to the cross. These achievements were Christ's alone. Um, in the Anglican Church, we have the 39 Articles, our Reformation Statement of Belief. Uh, it has an article, The offering of Christ once made is that perfect redemption, propitiation and satisfaction for the sins of the whole world, both original and actual. And, actual, and there is none other satisfaction for sin but that alone. That's what the Reformers were getting at. There's no other way to uh, make amends for your sin. And all of this leads to the, the, the fourth point, Christ's mediation alone. Uh, the uniqueness of Christ and what he's done and that was rediscovered from reading the Bible uh, showed that Christ was the sole mediator between humanity and God. Uh, we didn't need saints. We didn't need the Pope. We just needed Christ. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2 Verse 5 makes clear there is one God and one mediator between God and humankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. See, according to the Reformers, late medieval theology had absolutely corrupted that truth. Uh, they'd taken away the mediatorial role of Christ and given it to the Pope and to his officers in the church. And see, those barriers, those trees, were not um, merely superfluous. It's not like 
Um, we had a great view and now, well, it's not quite as good because we're looking at birds in trees instead of, you know, the Harbour Bridge or something. Um, actually, they actually corrupted and completely undermined the whole gospel. Uh, they, they ruined everything. Uh, the, with, with the church as the necessary mediator between uh, people and God, uh, actually the whole gospel was uh, completely corrupted. And the reformers, they stood against this teaching. They said, there is one mediator. They used the Bible to undermine this um, Roman understanding of priesthood and instead they argued for the priesthood of all believers. Uh, each of us can relate to God through his word. Uh, so the truth that the sinner was justified by faith proved that all the church's teaching about its rites and ceremonies were false. The church was not the mediator, Christ was. And the office of the papacy was a, a, um, an office of sustained critique by the reformers. It wasn't just a superfluous thing on the side. Actually, this teaching led people away from the gospel. It was a grave error. Uh, so from 1520 onwards, Luther regularly called the Pope the Antichrist because actually, by believing what he was teaching, you were missing out on Christ. Um, so this was a massive, uh, massive issue for the reformers. And really, that's what our... A Bible reading in Galatian picks up this false teaching, uh, the false teachers. If you believe a gospel other than the one, than the one that's given by, uh, by Paul, he's saying the one about Christ, actually it's no gospel at all. And so this wasn't just a, a slight, you know, a different track to go on. This was a, a complete folly and error that needed to be um, overturned. Uh, so there's no basis for those uh, medieval practices in Scripture. There was only one mediator between humanity and God, and that is Christ Jesus himself. So we spent a bit of time thinking about what it was like uh, 500 years ago and how the Reformers refocused the church on Christ and his works. It's Christ's merit alone, Christ's sacrifice alone, Christ's satisfaction alone, and Christ's mediation alone. Okay? Christ alone that deals with our sin. Christ alone holds us to God. And it's obscuring that doctrine, uh, including other things that need to be done or that the church does for us, uh, that's actually a terrible blight on what Christ has done for us. It said, what that says is, he is not enough. Christ is not enough. And it dishonors the one who should receive all honor in terms of our salvation. All glory, all dominion, forever and ever because of what he's done for us. But I hope that as we've kind of looked at the errors of the medieval church and the way the reformers kind of refocused the view back to who Christ is, uh, that we don't kind of have a bit of a holier-than-thou mentality. We're Protestants because I want to suggest that trees grow up in our lives. You might not be going to the Mass every day. I hope you're not. <laughs> um, thinking that that's the way to salvation. But there are things that grow up in our lives that obscure the view that uh, Christ should have, that we should have of Christ. Uh, we too often plant trees along the back fence and let them grow bit by bit, taking us away, shifting our focus. 
Uh, perhaps we come to depend on other things as well as Christ. And it doesn't matter what that extra thing is. Christ plus ultimately is minus. Um, you could be depending on a church leader or a particular um, denominational affiliation or on your baptism or how much money you give. And you think, well, because I've done this and this and this, I'll be right with God. And while you may profess to honour Christ, if you're depending on something else, you actually dishonour Christ. You can worship things other than Christ as well. Uh, And it doesn't matter what the extra thing is that you worship, uh, whether it's family or friends or wealth, prestige, children, parents, whatever it is. Um, While you may profess to honour Christ if you're worshipping something else, you dishonour Christ. Uh, Of course, uh, we all will have a place for Christ in our lives. But is it the place that God intends for him to have? God intends that it's Christ alone in whom we trust and in whom we worship. Him alone. Have we allowed trees to grow up and block our view? The truth is that... um, Christ is the answer to all our spiritual questions. Do you want to know God? Well, Christ is the perfect revelation of God. Do you want to not feel the burden of your sin? Well, Christ took your sin upon himself at the cross. Uh, Do you feel far away from God? Well, Christ has suffered to bring you near to God. Do you feel unloved? Well, Christ loved you all the way to death. He's the answer, Christ alone. And... Uh, I want to look at really two results that should flow from this revisioning of Christ in our lives. Uh, the first is we need to ensure that Christ is that centre of our lives. Uh, often when you read the stories of the trees growing up, uh, blocking the view, it's because someone has, and, and they've been you know, mysteriously disappeared overnight, it's because someone has done something to the trees. They've poisoned them, they've chopped them down, they've put copper nails in them, whatever it is. Uh, And while, like I said earlier, I don't condone that practice in our neighbourhoods, I want to say that um, if you have a brilliant view of Christ and there are trees growing up that are taking that view away, you need to do everything you can to chop those trees down. Uh, We need to take action. If you're putting your trust in something other than Christ, if you're putting uh, money, that's like putting money in bags with holes in it. Um, if you're worshipping anything in addition to Christ, that's like pouring water into a sieve. The Christ alone is the one to turn to for our salvation, for help in our present troubles, for our hope of our eternal future. Um, it is Christ alone. Don't trust anything else. Chop the trees down. Uh, gaze at that million dollar view that we have in Jesus Christ. Uh, The second thing that we should do, knowing what we do about Christ's work, is that when you've got that view, you know, don't keep it to yourself. (laughs) Invite your friends around to the balcony to have a look at it too. Uh, That's what the reformers did. Uh, The reformers made the fuss that they did because, yes, they discovered these truths as they read the Bible, but they couldn't keep them to themselves. They couldn't let everybody else live behind the trees while they enjoyed the view that they had. The reason Luther posted those theses on the 31st of October 1517 
was because he knew that all those people were in darkness coming to, to, to that um, uh, pilgrimage site. All those people were in darkness holding the indulgences that they'd bought to build St. Peter's in Rome. And he couldn't leave them in that darkness. He couldn't leave them behind the trees. It was a false, corrupt confidence that they had. And he cared too much to let them continue in it. Uh, And so the beginning of the Reformation is born out of care for other people, deceived people. They were missing out on Christ. And Luther cared too much uh, to let that deception continue. He had to do something about it. You see, I was thinking about this kind of courageous care, this active care um, of people missing out on Christ. And I wonder how I would compare. I wonder how you'd compare. Um, If at church you saw someone slowly slipping away, they're letting the trees grow up, um, their career... Uh, their, their prestige was eating away at their um, vision for Christ. Do you care enough to say something, to say anything to them? Or is it easier to talk about the football and the weather after church? You know, How much do you care? Um, if you see someone or someone tells you that they're about to make a foolish or a sinful decision, that's like planting you know, the big tree right there in the middle of the view. Do you care enough to say, hang on a second, what's that going to do for your relationship with Christ? See, the reformers, they cared enough to, to make sure that others could see the view too. Um, if we understand what God has done for us through Christ and through Christ alone, surely we ought to care enough for others to show them that magnificent, glorious view too. Uh, so that they might believe and honour him the way that we do. For he alone is worthy of this uh, honour. Revelation chapter 5, just finish with this kind of picture of what heaven will be like. Okay, It's not just for now. Uh, We get this picture of heaven where the company in heaven proclaim together, worthy is the lamb who was slain, the one who died for us, to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honour and glory and blessing. He certainly is worthy of that and we need to live our lives giving him those things. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do pray and thank you for what you've done for us in Jesus Christ. We thank you that it is through him alone that we meet you, that we have a relationship with you and that we live forever. And Father, we pray that we might honour him and worship him in our lives Help us to get rid of any distractions that take us away from that honour and worship in the way that we live. And we pray that we might show others uh, who Christ is for them too. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.